Today's episode of the two-man power trip of wrestling is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast. Podgo is providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co. That is one more time, P-O-D-G-O dot C-O, podgo dot co. Presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Hey, Johnny. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Welcome to the two-man power trip of wrestling. I am your host, JP John Paz, and with me today is a very special guest. He is a musician, a music producer. He is the man from Harry Slash and the Slash Tones. He is the ECW original himself, Mr. Harry Slash. Harry, how are you doing today, sir? What's up? Thank you so much for having me on. This is part of my 2021 podcast world tour. Yes, this is awesome. I, I... I saw you like hitting Twitter and stuff. I was like, wow, I wonder if that's really Harry Slash from the Slash Tone. Like, that's awesome, man. It's really you. You're back. Seriously, I never went away. Just, you know, I was part of the anti social media for a long time. 
I got you. you. Know, so what do you see, what have you been up to? Well, it depends on when you're asking. If you're talking about between today and last February, I've been sitting in the same chair I'm talking to you right now <laughs> and not much else. Prior to that, I, I was kind of busy, but COVID hit and it threw everything out the window. What were you doing pre-COVID? Right before COVID, I was about to start rehearsing a kind, not really a new band, just a couple of new members, some older members, um, a set of all original material, more along the lines of Leonard Cohn, Tom Waits, Johnny Cash than anything I did for ECW. I had a dozen shows booked, smaller shows, and I was waiting to hear back from the good people that run the Newport Folk Festival to get on one of their nights. And then everything stopped. Dead yeah. Stopped. Wow. So that's kind of a different genre of music, though, for you, isn't it? It seems like kind of way different, almost like heavy metal to country. Yeah, but it, it's part of what I'm about. I'm very proud of the body of work that I came up with for ECW, but it's not the only thing I can do. You know, plus, as you get older, your, your musical tastes change. You discover new bands, uh, a band that that like my favorite band right now is called Mumford and Sons that I discovered on the WFUV radio station. And from there, I, I started listening to a, a, a ton of others like Old Crow Medicine Show and then got back into Flat and Scrubs. And I always loved Tom Waits, Leonard Cohn, Roy Harper, you know, the Troubadour styles, Donovan, the older dudes. And I wrote an album's worth of material for that that I was supposed to record about four years ago. But the domino theory of bad luck kicked in. Uh, a week before the first recording session, my drummer at the time blew out his rotator cuff in his shoulder. So he had to have surgery as soon as he gets back on track my co-producer gets strep throat, so it pushed that back. Shortly after that, my saxophone player, who I've done everything with since 94, he got hit by a drunk driver doing 90. He was rear-ended by a drunk driver and was almost left paralyzed. Oh, my so God. He's, he's fine now. He can walk, you know, but he'll never be 100%. But that put it on the shelf. Then my other, my bass player... Uh, he needed to have a couple of vertebrae fused in his neck from long-term damage over the years. And as he's getting that done, my other guitar player got bitten by a black widow spider in his right hand. Ooh, dangerous. Could be dangerous. Yeah. It could be lethal. Yeah. And all the toxins kind of messed up his dexterity. And everybody started getting back to physical shape and healthy. And we were ready to go. And COVID kicked. Damn. And is it still Harry Slash and the Slash Tones, or is it something else? It's going to be Harry Slash and who knows what. Uh, the Slash Tones are known for two things. The comedy music that we did locally in New York, where it was very much like a satire type of thing. The band would play, um, let me think. All right, like the band would play Welcome to the Jungle by Guns N' Roses, but I would sing the words to the Adams Family with the Welcome to the Jungle <laughs> melody. You know, we, we did a ton of songs like that, like we did the Brady Bunch over Stepping Stone by the, the Monkees, the Sex Pistols. We would do uh, the Beverly Hillbillies over My Generation by The Who. It was kind of like a Frank Zappa, Dread Zeppelin kind of thing that was just a whole lot of fun and musically insane because there would be like 25 little changes 
within the song itself. So between that and the ECW themes, the slash tones are pretty much known for that. But honestly, the slash tones have always been me and whoever I'm playing with at that moment. So ah, whatever, okay. I, whatever I call this next project, it will be Harry Slash and I don't know what the rest is going to be. Where did that Probably. come from, those? I was going to say, where did that come from, the slash tones? Like, where, where does that, like, where does that emanate from? Uh, it was a joke when I did the band. It was supposed to be a one-night-only thing a bunch of years ago. So, I, you know, like Bella Fleck and the flesh tones, uh, Dick Dale and the Dale tones. So it was a joke. <laughs> I called it Slash Tones, and it was primarily a cover band for my birthday party that I did at a club I was booking and promoting in Manhattan. And it was supposed to be a one night only thing. A year later, another promote my club had closed and another promoter said, why don't you put the slash tones back together and do another show on your birthday? And the next thing I know, before the year's up, I'm playing in front of six and 700 people at a clip. It just kind of took off as like this New York cult thing and just kept going from there. I love and then it. around 97 is when Paul asked me to do a couple of tunes for ECW and it changed direction. So how did you actually kind of get into the wrestling business? Like, how does Paul Heyman find you? How does he know you? That's the funny thing is I never wanted to be in the wrestling business. Other than when I was a kid, I wanted to be Bruno Sammartino's tag team partner. But eventually Bruno <laughs> Sammartino lost the belt, permed his hair, put on a suit. He became a commentator. And in New York, especially my area, all wrestling went to cable television off of broadcast. And I didn't have cable where I lived. There was no cable in Queens for the longest time. It was a 10-year dispute as to who would have the Queens, New York territory. So in that time, I totally lost interest in wrestling. I didn't have TBS, the Superstation. I didn't see the AWA uh, five nights a week or whatever it was on, I believe it was ESPN. So I missed all that. Okay, my last vivid memory of wrestling on television was Bob Backlund was champion. And then it disappeared off my TV. And then my only exposure for maybe a dozen plus years was watching it on Thanksgiving at my cousin's house when they do the Survivor Series on Thanksgiving night. And every year it was the same question. Who's this guy? Who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? I didn't know what was going on. At some point I meet Paul Heyman. I don't know what he does for a living. We become friends. I find out what he does for a living. We stay friends. And I slowly, he slowly started bringing me into ECW on a behind the scenes thing, had nothing to do with music, you know, little odd jobs here and there because of my contacts and various skills I had um, outside of that universe. And then in 97 was the WWF crossover where ECW invaded Monday Night Raw. Paul needed clones, soundalikes of what they were using in ECW because Vince didn't want to pay for publishing. So um, he asked me to like listen to wrestling music and I listened to it and I'm like, this is rather simple. It's very pedestrian. There's nothing, there's, it's not the Mahavishnu Orchestra by any means. <laughs> like, this is what you want, simple and stupid. And he goes, yeah, can you do it? And I'm like, yeah, sure. So he gave me like four days to write, produce, and master like five songs for the Monday Night Raw crossover. 
And I put together a monster band that included Richie Scarlett and Steve Budgie Werner from the Ace Freely Band. The co-producer was Eddie Wall, who produced Primer 55, and he produced El Nino. And he's won like 2,000 Emmy Awards for original music for television. You know, this was all after ECW, you know, but I had a great lineup and literally in 24 hours from 9 a.m. Saturday morning to around 9 p.m. Sun 9 a.m. Sunday morning, a 24 hour continuous session with all these cats. And we got all the stuff ready for Monday. I love it. That's awesome. Now, did you like Paul? Like, were you cl were close friends or just kind of acquaintances? Yeah. No, we were very good friends. I'd see him like three, four times a week in the club world, be it China Club, Danceteria, Limelight, or what have you. I just didn't know what he did for a living. And because of the way other people kissed his ass, I figured he was either like a mobster, a pornographer, a drug dealer, something like that. And it turns out he was a little bit of all. <laughs> yeah, a wrestling promoter, a little bit of each one, right? Mix yeah, them up together. A little bit of a mafioso. You're definitely a pornographer. Now, did you like his attitude and his New York style? He's got that New York attitude about him. He's a completely different person than Paulie Dangerously, but he's not. And as far as the attitude and New York style, he fit right in. That's why we got along. When you said you, you know you were a big fan and you love Bruno and stuff, were you like super into it? I know this is like early like if we're talking 60s 70s really into it but were you like super into it like you would watch all the shows back then there wasn't that much to watch now this was like junior high school into high school era where our what we got here in new york was saturday nights at midnight you'd have the main wwwf show Sundays at 5 p.m. on a Spanish station, Channel 47, I forget what the call letters were, you had the watered-down version, the B-Show, which I believe was the second nights of taping. One was Allentown back then, I forget what the other was. The Saturday night show would give you six matches, the Sunday show would give you five matches. Tuesday nights at 11 p.m. on a Spanish network, we had championship wrestling from florida with gordon soley and dusty is the main guy the grahams the ortons and then on wednesdays at i believe 7 or 8 p.m we got wrestling from the olympic auditorium but the commentary was overdubbed in spanish but if you turned up the tv really really loud you could hear the english commentary wow and that was what I was into. Was I really into it? Yeah, I, I had my own Dusty Rhodes t-shirt made back then because they didn't make t-shirts. You know, I was heavily into it. But then, you know, things happen like puberty and you graduate high school and other things take its place. Plus, I lost it. Like I said, it, it went off of cable. And other than wrestling magazines, there was no way to really follow what was going on. And if I wasn't watching it on TV, I didn't buy the magazines. So I missed that entire cartoon rock and wrestling era. But I ended up revisiting it, you know, you know, years later through videos and what have you. And it was phenomenal. Everything was one giant cartoon. Basically, yeah. But I missed all of it. 
Good stuff with Dusty. I used to love Dusty. I actually did the last ever interview with uh, Dusty Rhodes back in 2015, right before he passed. It was shocking because we got friendly through text messaging and you know, quick phone calls and stuff. But it was like, wow, I can't believe he passed. But what a cool guy. He acted like he didn't know me for anything. But we acted like, oh, it's, he's my buddy. Oh, yeah, John. You know, like very, very cool guy. But that's what kind of sucked you in as a fan, too. Like he just had that natural energy gravitate to him. When, when Paul told me that Dusty Rhodes was coming into ECW, I was like, I thought he was joking. I'm like, there's no way. <laughs> and the first time I saw him in the dressing room, I turned into a five-year-old kid again. I was starstruck. I didn't know what to say to the guy. I, I was in awe of him. And getting to do his, his intro theme for ECW and, and little little things with Dusty, like getting him to the ring, stuff like that was like going full circle where I never expected to even meet the guy, let alone hang out and talk with the guy. That's awesome. Did you tell him that you had a homemade shirt of him at one point? Dude, I was so nervous around Dusty. I don't think I even told him my name. <laughs> did he know you did his theme? Yes. Did he yes, like it? He yeah. Yes, he did. You know, he all, he knew I was involved in the production side of it. He knew who I was. But like I said, him and Terry Funk, I, I was just like the little kid, you know, shaking around them because these were the guys I watched as a kid. These were my idols growing up. And now I'm, I'm like, you know, a foot away from each one of them. Awesome. That's crazy. With his theme song, I didn't even realize you did. It. I'm thinking of all the other theme songs. I didn't even realize you did Dust. Did you do a lot more than maybe I'm thinking you did? Probably. Probably. I, I did like I didn't do a song for everybody because there were some people you couldn't top what they had. Like no matter what I tried, there's nothing I could have ever come up with that would have been better than Enter Sandman for for Sandman. Yep. You know, and with ECW, it was like some guys got original music, some guys didn't, depending on how over they were with the song and the song was with the audience. You know, Tommy Dreamer has had man in the box but there was nothing better than man in a box for him true great song absolutely yeah. i was gonna say what about uh, dusty's theme though like what what was like the inspiration behind it well that was mostly written by this band out in long island uh that i knew and when i first heard them play it that reminded me of dusty road something about it reminded me of dusty and it was on, I think, the Friday after Thanksgiving or the Wednesday before Thanksgiving that these guys were playing in a bar in Long Island. And I was going to go out to see them right before I left my house. Paul called me up. He's like, what are you doing? I said, I'm about to do, you know, go out and see the guys play. And he's like, don't leave. Wait, I'm on my way to your house. So he came here. We both went out there to see him which I figured was great. It would kill two birds with one song, with one stone. He'd get to hear the song I wanted him to use for Dusty. And he liked that. But then on the way home, he came up with the idea where he said to me, if you write and produce it, I'll let those guys do the song for Mike Awesome also. Nice. Very cool. Yeah. Man, he put a lot of faith in you, a lot of trust in you, for sure. He must and have liked your work. I, I would say he did because he kept getting me to do more. Now, all this time while I'm doing music, that's not my main thing with ECW. My main thing was always production at the live events and the pay-per-views. I always thought that was more important than the music. You know, little things like, you know, um, getting 
a thousand styrofoam heads out in three minutes for Al Snow and sneaking Sid into the building and, you know, making sure there was a blackout when the blackout happened and checking levels for audio and, you know, tiny little jobs, a million little things to do over a given night. I always thought that was more important than music. And I, I just said this, I just talked about this with Francine on her podcast. Very few people in the company knew I was the guy doing the music because I wasn't backstage putting myself over. You know, whoever knew, knew. And then it wasn't until the CD came out that most of the company realized that Harry is the same guy that's doing the ECW theme and Sabu's music and Taz's music. I love that. I didn't realize you had more of a backstage role. I guess a lot of people didn't realize it, but man, yeah, you had way more of a backstage role than I even realized. Yeah, it, it was part of the gig. And like I said, I thought that was more important than the music because if the, if I never played a note in the studio, uh, the show would have gone on. But it was the the little little things that I did for the live production that I thought made the world of difference. Sandman's return after he left WCW, he didn't mm -hmm. go into the arena. He stayed in the van. Very few people knew it was he was even there. Only a select small circle of people, the people involved in the match and a couple of others. And it was my job at the right time to go get him out of the van, sneak him through the, through the building and get him to the ladder so that he could climb up to the balcony to make that entrance when they, they did the follow spot on him which was the loudest pop in ECW history. And I kid you not, when they turned that follow spot on, I actually felt like a rush of wind because the entire audience leaned forward towards Sandman all at the same time. Yeah, awesome, awesome moment. You know, and he, he the term kayfabe is thrown around loosely, but he took kayfabe to the max lap that night like he did with the blinding. Even when I got him out of the van, bringing him through the backstage area, he put a towel over his head so that nobody could see his face. He didn't want anybody to know he was there until the follow spot went on. And obviously it paid off because it was a phenomenal moment in ECW history. Yeah, that, that is awesome. So like, what was your official title? Like you're bringing him in the building. So what are you technically working there? Uh, production assistant, I guess. We really have titles because people would have like three or four jobs. You know, Tommy Dreamer, besides running, you know, being Tommy Dreamer, he also ran uh, the merchandise with, with Little Guido, and I think it was Devon, and Stevie Richards uh, ran the Philadelphia office for tickets. Uh, Bubba Ray Dudley was also the promoter for the Queens area. Taz also ran the school. Everybody had two or three different gigs at the same time. So my, my official on-screen title I gave myself as concerned official number three because if something <laughs> would happen to the ring Paul would send a bunch of people down to ringside and the first time he, he said go down to ringside with them I said what do you want me to do just look concerned so I <laughs> went to ringside I looked concerned and I, I named myself concerned official number three did anybody say like hey what, what's Harry Slash doing out here did anybody notice what from from the, the locker room? No, no, I'm saying like the fans. Did the like any of the fans know this? They didn't know who I was oh. at the time. Very few people, even the fans didn't know who I was until the video game came out. I was in the ECW video game and they put two and two together. 
Because prior to that, nobody ever asked me for an autograph or even, you know, said anything to me. And then after that, people realized, you know, they put two and two together. Did you like being under the radar kind of like that? Because it seems like. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because I could I could do some I could do things and not be picked up with it because I I looked like the fans. I wore the black ECW T-shirt. I had my leather vest on the baseball cap. And I would keep my laminates inside my vest pocket. So when they were brawling through the crowd, I would be right there with security, but you wouldn't notice me. And if a fan got a little out of hand, uh, the fan would get tuned up and nobody would notice. And I'm sure but that happened I'm, a lot with those fans. Yeah, but I'm, I'm not that person anymore. I'm, I'm more of a pacifist these days. You're like uh, the dude. I'm a pacifist. Yeah, I would. Yeah, from Lebowski, I would say that's pretty yeah. accurate. You know, but back then I was more like Joe Pesci from Goodfellas. You when know, there, there, sin- there, oh, sorry, there, I was going to say like several, there were several incidences where fans physically assaulted a wrestler, and they realized that was the biggest mistake they made that year. Because wow. if Atlas didn't get to them, I got to them, and if I didn't get to them, then they were at the mercy of like Balls Mahoney and Big Dick Dudley or Two Cold Scorpio or Tracy, and there was no surviving that. Yeah, that's great. I was going to say, even I bet during that Sandman, I bet there was a huge, like you said, there was a huge uh, wind gust. I bet there was a huge rush where fans just went nuts. They did, but with Sandman, he would always make his entrances through the audience, so he was, there was nothing ever really to worry about with him. Nobody was going to attack Sandman. Gotcha. You know? Other guys like Mikey Whipwreck got attacked, Bulls Mahoney, you know, fans got stupid, you know, and while the, the rule number one is try and calm the situation, if you can't calm the situation, get them out of the building by any means necessary. And Atlas Security was known, uh, you know, known as being some big tough guys in that, that group as well. Oh, Lord. Yeah. There was one dude named Rick who was the most freakishly strong human being I ever encountered. He thought I was fighting with Chris Candido where I actually had the guy that hit Chris in a chokehold. And he reached over and lifted me up by the head. He just put his hands on top of my head, squeezed and lifted me off the ground. Meanwhile, I've got the fan that attacked Chris in a legit chokehold, and now I'm, I'm lifting him off the ground because I'm being lifted off the ground by this giant bull of a man. Atlas Security was no joke. They, they, their job was to protect the wellness of the wrestlers at any cost, and they did a wonderful job. And, you know, sometimes things get out of hand and people got hurt, and it's a shame because it really was a show. That's that's what it basically was. But Atlas was just doing their job. I feel like the ECW fans, especially that you know, I guess you could drink and do whatever at the shows. Seemed like they would always get pretty rowdy. For the most part, the fans were awesome. Okay, very respectful. Part of the show, totally into it. Like Rocky Horror, they knew when to do what, when to cheer. But every so often, you would get the asshole that got a little too drunk and a little too high before coming to the show and said to himself, I'm going to punch Balls Mahoney in the face tonight. And that was a mistake. (laughs) I would say, yeah. With, like, let's say Sandman makes a surprise appearance and you said you're a big part of the production. How does, like, 
all that go down. Like he's just literally in the van the whole time, and you're like yeah. the liaison, or do, or the wrestlers actually, you know, because he's got to work with Credible that night or, or Rhino, whoever. Just like they come out to the van, did you sneak him in, or you the liaison? How does that work? Uh, as far as I know, the only per- people that spoke to him were Tommy and Paul. I believe that Lance and Justin were told, but not until the very last minute, what was going to happen. Um, I didn't see him until I went and knocked on the door of the van and said, hack, it's time, let's go. And he took this giant, this giant, bl- not blanket, uh, a towel and covered it on his head, had the stick close to his body, the, the kendo stick. And he was completely blinded. So he, I grabbed him by the hand and led him through the locker room. And as we're going through it, people are looking up going, what the fuck is going on? A lot of the wrestlers in the company on the show that night, they had no clue he was there until they heard the pop. Pretty good to keep that surprise. Yeah. Well, that was everything Hack was about was the suspension of disbelief and the theatrics of it. If one person in the audience suspected he was there, it wouldn't have gotten the same reaction. And I know that that night, Mikey Whipwreck also made his return because one of the sheet writers had put out the rumor that a former ECW champion was going to be returning to the arena that night. So at the last minute, Paul brought in Mikey Whipwreck. He was the first match of the night and everybody forgot about the fact that I I forget which one of the writers was that, that wrote it, but you know, after Mikey and Mike Awesome, nobody gave a second thought to a guy returning to ECW from WCW. They saw Mikey. They thought it was over. And Pretty then, smart. Kaboom. Yeah. Paul working the sheets. I love it. I don't know if it was him or if the word got out. I really don't know. I didn't get into that aspect of the business. You know, the whole... Um, not counterintelligence. Um, I'm spacing on the word. Uh, disinformation. Uh, that was his thing. He would, he would feed something to the dirt sheets so that they would write about that as opposed to what's really going on. Yeah. He's brilliant at that. There was a time years ago when CM Punk had left. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he had left WWE and he apparently was the one he goes, CM Punk is returning tonight in Chicago and he leaked that to the sheets. So, CM Punk's music hits. Guess who doesn't come out? CM Punk. Guess who does come out? Paul. <laughs> yeah. So, so it like came out like he basically tricked him because he wanted all eyes on him, and he was going to make this big kind of joking surprise. And like it's just funny. Like he def- he works the sheets a lot all the time. Yeah. Still. Yeah. Well, it's it's it was to generate a buzz. There, there the inf- internet was in its infancy when ECW was running, we didn't have YouTube or, or Skype or, or podcasts or anything like this. The internet was just basically websites. And he got the most possible mileage you could. Had the internet been what it is today with YouTube and, and streaming, ECW wouldn't have needed television. They would have kept going, maybe. Yeah, I see a lot of promotions now. They're on you know, whatever Roku or whatever streaming service that they, they, or YouTube. I mean, they try to use that as a big springboard to start making some money. Yeah. You know, it's, it's taking advantage of the tools you have at your disposal. And Paul did that 
to the best of his ability. Had he had YouTube or streaming back then, we would have never probably even been on TNN. There would have been no need for it. When did you start in ECW? You said 97? 90, late 95, early 96. Oh, okay. I was around for a bit before I ever did music. Then I wasn't full time. Gotcha. And then you decided, or then Paul decided with the music that he wanted you to start doing some of the music. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, the production took precedence. So I tried to make it the, the first show with music was right before the pay-per-view, the first pay-per-view. Prior to that, I was mostly in the Northeast with a select few trips outside the Northeastern region because they mostly tape television in, in Philadelphia or New York, you know, and while it did run in a lot of other markets, I, there was no need for me to go because there was no TV being taped. Doing the music and, and getting that, where do you come up with the, you know, this is extreme, basically what everybody remembers when that first beat hits or whatever you want to say, first riff i mean everyone knows that song it, it like fits ecw to a t what like what was the thought process do you just create that on top of your head were you given any guidance because it fits absolutely perfectly i can't even think of like another organization where the song fits more appropriately and perfectly than that's on the ecw thank you very much um paul gave me ideas of like an outline of what he wanted and while he was a brilliant man. Musically, he didn't know terminology. So I would ask him, like, give me two or three songs that if you could have those, you would use those. So I would get an idea of what the vibe he wanted. And this was less than a week before the Barely Legal pay-per-view. The extreme theme was written and recorded in like four, four nights from like two to five in the morning after my writing partner, Roderick Cohn, uh, was finished with his gigs for the night. Because he, he was a constant guitar player, constantly playing. He'd be in like 14 different bands at any given moment. He was the ultimate hired gun here in New York. So where I came up with that I thought would fit, you know, what inspired the extreme theme was the theme from Jaws. Remember the movie Jaws? Oh, yes. All time great. So you had that slow build, but, um, but, um, you know, and it would slowly build and build and build until it took off and you realized shit was about to get real nasty and bloody. And that's kind of what I wanted to bring into the ECW theme. You know, the, the three, the octaves at the beginning was kind of like the cool thing that I said, Hey, let's start it like this. You know, the, the three keyboard sounds that everybody's familiar with, which became the breaking glass of the ECW theme, you know? Yep. And it was basically, what if Trent Reznor and Rob Zombie wrote the theme from Jaws? And that, that was the vibe we were going with. That's perfectly said. You think it's almost like you're very zombie or Trent Reznor-esque, and then you throw Jaws. Yeah, wow, that's, that's great. Yeah, good point. Well, the next time you hear the theme from Jaws, you'll realize, you know, yeah, that's that's what inspired him. You know, whereas Jaws, I believe it was just two notes and we did three notes or something like that. It was a very simple tune, 
but you didn't really need much more. What you needed was some, some high energy, some intensity and the initial explosion. Awesome. And then, uh, Paul's voiceover a little bit, right? This is extreme. That was me. That, oh, that's you? It sounds like Paul. Wow, okay. Oh, awesome. Well, we've, I've been told we sound alike, and back then we kind of looked alike from behind. The ponytail, not exactly skinny little guys by any means. Um, that gravelly voice thing, that was just part of my, my act with the Slash Tones. You know, the whole gravelly horse voice. So, yeah, over the years, a lot of people thought it was Paul, but it wasn't. That was me. Well, forever. You know, this has got to be going on 20 years or whatever. I, I always thought that was Paul. It just sounds just like him. That wasn't done intentionally. It just turned out that way. Look at that. Things you uh, learn here. I didn't, did not know that. Because it sounds obviously just like him. So you're like, oh, okay. You know, in your head, you're just like, okay, fits in perfectly. Paul's saying this is extreme. It's what he would probably say on TV. Yeah, it worked out. Again, it wasn't intentionally done to sound like him. That was just my vo voicings at the time. Do you do the video production to go along with the, the song? Or, or no, that's that's the, um, the other guy. Ron, Ron and Charlie. I was in the production studio a lot learning but you know the way those guys would edit the show they'd stay awake for three state straight days with paul they'd be like 72 hours worth of edits before the tapes got shipped off to syndication and it's absurd that we're talking about the television show was shipped out on vhs tapes to the various syndicated networks how crazy is that imagine now, thinking that today no, today you just uploaded it to to a site and they download it. That crazy? Mm -hmm. just, they could get lost in the mail and everything else. Yep. Well, luckily it never did. But there were several times where he'd be running late running the shows. So he had to pay for overnight delivery to certain markets. But, you know, it is what it is. When he sees the theme song and then they put it in the video, does he absolutely love it, think it's perfect, think it's extreme championship wrestling? Or none? Well, he, he used it and from barely legal until the end of the company's run, so I'm pretty sure he liked it. For TNN, I did like a remix of it that had more loops in it, some other instrumentation. But it was basically the same tune. There was a slight difference between the original and the one that we used on TNN. And then for the Pioneer Home videos, I re-recorded a completely different version, more industrial of that tune. I think I did like three or four different versions of the same song for the various markets. I wanted the company to have, you know, a defining theme song, but a slight variation for every product. When you do the music for Pioneer Video and like all of that stuff, do you have to get paid like a separate fee, like for them to be using your music and selling it like that? or? Yeah, ECW never owned my music. That was the deal I had with Paul. It was kind of like, I'm lending you my car, but you don't own my car. You can drive my car. You can go pick up and drop off dead hookers in my car, but you can't <laughs> give my car away. So technically, when they went bankrupt and WB bought it, WB doesn't technically own your music either, right? I mean, you own it, right? Well, it happened a few years later, they purchased the catalog. There was... At that point, it was a dead catalog. They purchased the footage. Um, this was before I knew they were going to relaunch the, the 
ECW brand. So they, they purchased the publishing and the sound recordings. I forget what they own, what they don't. It was a gray area. And after all these years, they it didn't turn out right. I don't really want to talk too much about it legally. I can't get too heavily into it. But they ended up purchasing the catalog and using it. Had I known what the ECW revival would have been like, I would have rather just let the music die. It was not good. Oh, no. Oh, no. My, my, my late father watched that first episode on the Sci-Fi Network. And answer is back. And it always bothered me that I stole one hour of his life to watch that first episode of the, you know, the relaunch of ECW. Man, the zombie. I remember that uh, all too vividly. That was that was bad. The whole thing was like the pet cemetery version of ECW. You know, yeah, they brought it back, but it's not quite right. You know, and as time went on, it got worse and worse. Uh, Fans were calling it WECW or WWECW because there's no way some of those guys would have ever held the title if ECW kept running. I can guarantee you Vince McMahon would have never been ECW champion. Right. I can guarantee that. Others I could see, like CM Punk and some of the others that held it during the relaunch, I absolutely could have seen them being ECW champions had the company kept going. But then there were a few others that, no, there's no way these guys would have held the belt if Paul was still running the show. They WWE-ized ECW and completely just made it a force. At Cemetery. Yep. 100%. When ECW went out of business in 2001, so you were still there all the way up until the end? Yes. Were you shocked? A little, because Paul had a tendency of making miracles happen. But... You know, firsthand knowledge, he tried so hard to keep it going after the TNN deal folded, and it just wasn't meant to be. There's been a lot of stories over the years of what happened that people have gotten wrong. Like, I can tell you, I know for a fact, he did not film Rollerball prior to the bankruptcy. He filmed it afterwards, and he filmed, he didn't go to California to film those scenes, They were filmed in a soundstage in Westchester. The reason I know is because I drove him there. You know, ECW had gone under. He'd accepted the job with Vince, with WWE. And then the rollerball thing came up. Prior to that, he tried to get it on MTV. He tried to get a deal with the USA Network. You know, I know that for a fact because I went to his house at like nine in the morning to take him to the airport to go to California and talk with the people at USA. By 6 p.m., it was it was over. Uh, Barry Diller, I believe, was running the USA network, and he didn't even want to talk to anybody. His thing was if he couldn't have the number one brand in wrestling, he didn't want any wrestling on his network. And that meeting... Paul spent the day trying to, you know, salvage that meeting, trying to get something else going in California, and it just wasn't meant to be. But for all the people that said he just gave up, no, I know for a fact he he tried, and he almost had an aneurysm because I'd see the veins throbbing in his forehead trying to get something going. He didn't just give up the ship. He, He tried to hold on to it and keep it alive as long as possible. Why wasn't he at the final shows, like when they were in Arkansas and stuff? Like, why, why wasn't he there? 
By that point, he wasn't going to a lot of the house shows. Tommy Dreamer was running everything. As to why he wasn't there, you'd have to ask him. I can I I can speculate. Why would you want to go see something you love die? True. Yeah, I guess with Dreamer running things, he was very. Let's just say that if it was keep kept afloat and they were doing house shows, very confident Dreamer can you know handle it and run the show. Yeah, yeah, because Tommy was doing that for over a year you know paul would give him you know some bullet points of what he needed for footage but paul would be at the tv tapes and tapings he wouldn't go to the house shows you know he was trying to keep the company afloat and you know plus things weren't going so well back then so you don't want to put yourself in a situation where you're forced to lie to the people that are depending on you the pine bluff shows um weren't supposed to be the end those last two shows there was a curtain call but he tried to salvage what he could and at one point they were legitimately thinking about the march living dangerously pay-per-view which didn't happen okay i believe the last shows were january of 01 and then a whole bunch of shows prior to that, like Texas, got canceled for one reason or another, whether it was building issues or whether the town didn't want us in. So the revenue stream that was supposed to be generated by a lot of those shows that got canceled put ECW even further back. And I know that the, the talk was the Living Dangerously pay-per-view, he was going to borrow Rhino from Vince for one night because Rhino had signed with WWE bring Rhino back, put the world title on Van Damme. There were a couple of people that had already signed with Vince that he would have been able to borrow for the night because he had a great working relationship with WWE. Case in point, you know, he needed to take the belt off Mike Awesome. He brought back Taz. So if the pay-per-view was going to happen, I kind of remember what he had in mind for matches uh, but it just wasn't meant to be. And at that point, $6 million in debt, it's time to, to you got to know when to fold them. You got to know when to walk away. Do you think Vince would have helped out even more? Because I know, you know that's out there that he helped Paul, right? He gave him some money over the years and you know, he was helping ECW. You think that he would have stepped in or he wanted it to be cleared out? Then he wanted to buy it out of bankruptcy. I really don't know, to be honest with you. Um, I'd like to say yes, but I don't know for a fact that he would have, you know, buying it for what he did was less than what it was valued at, but he got an amazing library. He got a lot of intellectual properties. So much like WCW it benefited him to have the company go under and then buy it for a fraction of what it was worth out of the bankruptcy courts. Again, this is just my speculation. I don't know how the business minds up in Titan Towers work. Seems like he got a hell of a deal because even maybe the first few weeks of that DVD, the rise and fall of ECW, and never you know, never mind the whole year that it, that it, when it first came out, he made his money back and then some. I mean, that DVD sold like hotcakes. I believe that's the second highest selling DVD they ever put out. It's I up there, yeah. The only one beating it is one of the WrestleManias. I don't know which one. But that was on, on the Billboard charts, number one in DVD sales for like 14 or 15 straight weeks, which is quite an accomplishment. Yeah. 
I believe I, WrestleMania 23 with Trump, I want to say, but I'm not 100% sure on that. I know that the Pioneer DVDs all charted on the Billboard charts, but not for 14 weeks. Pretty impressive. Who knew, you know, right, that uh, they're going to do a rise and fall and it was going to sell that well. Crazy. Yeah, it was Shows you the fan base is interested. Well, there, there's still a, a big fan base for that product. A lot of the people that were in their, you know, in junior high school and high school at the time are now in their 30s and 40s, and they're nostalgic for that era of wrestling, the blood and guts and borderline pornography nature of what it was back then. And a lot of people are revisiting. I know that tape, not tape trading, but, you know, hard drive trading with all the original shows is a big thing. They, they want the original content, the original music, you know, the cursing. There's a big market for that. I know that merchandise, ECW merchandise, at one point, you couldn't give it away. I had like, like five or six cases of the action figures that I couldn't give away that are now like $300 a pop. And yep. I sold them for like $50 a case 15 years ago. Crazy how the market has completely, completely changed. And even now with the WWE Network now, Peacock, even further, people are so mad that they scrub, you know, a lot of the stuff out. They take stuff off. They edit stuff off. They change the music. The music's not original. So it's like, man, you got to have the original copies, the original tape. I have them all still on DVD. I still, I kept up my physical, people were laughing, keeping my physical stuff because I want to watch, if I'm going to go back, I want to watch a full, complete show that's original. I feel like a little bit of a historian, a little bit, where I want to have, okay, Shane Douglas, I want to have Deep Purple. You know what I mean? I want to actually relive the actual show, not some knockoff and where they're going to edit stuff out. Of course, you want to experience it as it was. You know, if, if you watch the Woodstock music, the Woodstock movie, you want to hear Jimi Hendrix doing the Star Spangled Banner. You don't want to hear him playing the Beer Barrel Polka. You know, yep. you don't want to hear that overdub. You want to experience it as it was, as authentically as possible. Now, I forgot to mention this because I really wanted to know, Sabu's theme, where does that come from? Okay, I that wasn't done for Sabu per se. It was an idea I had for a song where I wanted to incorporate like a German heavy metal ballad like the Scorpions would do on their slower songs for the drums. Yep. But the, the guitar rhythms, I wanted to base it off of a song called March of the Monsters from the Godzilla movie, Destroy All Monsters, which was like, bum, 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 So it was loosely based on, on those two. We recorded it, and then I brought Arno in, Arno Hack, the saxophone player, and he was just going to double the guitars you know, reinforce the guitar rhythms. And he started blowing some disjointed notes, kind of Middle Eastern. And I said, forget what I told you, do that instead. You know, give me some some drugged out belly dancer music instead of heavy metal. And those four different international influences, you, you got the German drums, you got the Japanese rhythm pattern, you got the Middle Eastern horns, came together very well. I, I let Paul hear it. He's like, I don't know what this is, but I want to use it. And he didn't know who to use it for at first. And it wasn't until, you know, him and a couple of other people like started batting ideas. I forget who said it sounds like it would be good for Sabu. And it ended up, you know, marrying me to Sabu. 
because to this day, he still uses that song. And he also used it in WWE. And when he was in TNA wrestling, they did a knockoff of it in TNA and on the indies. And, you know, it's instantly recognizable for Sabu, but it wasn't originally written for him, which is probably why it's still kind of cool today. Like Man in a Box wasn't written for Tommy Dreamer. It just fit the character. The same thing would go with Hookah Blues for Sabu. Such a like perfect song for him. It's uh, crazy that it's not originally for him You know, yeah. when the original concept, because it literally fits perfectly. Like, you can literally see him like pointing, see him walking. Like It just seems like it just fits his every movement. Yeah, it just worked out really well. The other one that wasn't done for the wrestler himself was the, the music they used for Tajiri. The song I did for Tajiri actually predates ECW, where it was me and Roderick Cohn at like five in the morning, and I would just play with his drum machine and his loops and his samplers and his guitars and came up with this crazy thing with 30 different snare drums and just had fun with it as a joke. I sent it um, along with some other tunes I did to Paul. I called it T.I.W., which stands for the invisible wrestler because it was meant to be a joke years earlier i told paul an idea i had for an invisible wrestler where it would be a guy like you know that would just bump around the ring by himself but it wasn't so much the wrestling it was the merchandise invisible wrestler eight by ten it's a blank piece of paper the invisible wrestler action figure it's an empty box it was a joke it was an inside joke and somehow or another, it ended up being used for Tajiri. Fits him, too, somehow. It's funny how these things work out, man. You know, Metallica didn't write Enter Sandman for Sandman, but could you imagine him coming to the ring to anything else? Yeah. Not effectively. You know, it's funny how these things just kind of work out. And Taz's theme, obviously, uh, perfect for him as well. A bit of a kiss cover, I guess you could say. The first one, very much so. That was the watered-down knockoff of what he was using. And then when his character changed a little and he got darker, we did the second version of that song called Survive If I Let You, where all we used was the knockoff riff, and the rest of the song changed completely. At the time, Taz was listening to some industrial stuff. I'm trying to remember the name of the band. I think not Chumbawamba. Um, Prodigy. Prodigy, who I think we used one of their tunes for Al Snow, but yes. he liked that industrial, sl slow, you know, mean, methodical sound, and that's what we tried to do, and we captured that would survive if I let you. Cool song. I mean, uh, anytime I hear War Machine, you know, by Kiss, I always kind of think of Taz too, like just because. Yeah, obviously well, he that, did that that for a while, you know, yeah. Sabu. You know, my favorite theme for Sabu prior to mine was when he was using a little crazy by fight the rob halford band you know that fit him very well you know because of the nature of the character absolutely does that always go into your head like for certain guys when you're doing music like oh it's got to fit the character of who they are it can't just be a good song yes it had to be ecw unlike wwf uh, had a big difference with WWF. You'd hear the glass breaking. Austin would be right through the, out through the curtain. Can you smell what the rock is cooking? Boom, throw the rock right out there. There was no 
lag time whatsoever. Everything kept moving. Whereas with ECW, theatrics and high drama were part of the entrance. So I had to time certain things for when exactly the guy would come through the curtain. The Eliminators, for instance, would wait until they heard total elimination before going through the curtain. Mike Awesome would wait until the first line of the vocals. It was done purposely. Like Rob Van Dam in ECW, you could get the chorus of Walk playing 400 times before he'd come through the curtain. You know, there, there were times when the music would start and three and a half minutes later, Rob still hadn't gone through the curtain. He would just let the, you know, let, let it build until they, they were salivating to see him. And that's the one thing with ECW that within 30 to 45 seconds, I had to have the quote unquote, the pop that guys knew that's their point to go through the curtain. If I was writing for another company these days, it would be five seconds at the most get them out of there out of the curtain into the let the audience see them yeah they like with austin he would go to all four turnbuckles he'd have a couple of beers but the moment that glass broke he was out of, out and on his way to the ring and getting a huge pop yes with the music like when you're doing the music and stuff and and, and ecw do you realize like how important the music is to ECW as a whole? Because I feel like that's what so many people kind of say like, oh, when they watch ECW, when WWE put out edited footage without the music, oh, it's not the same. Like, did you realize at the time, like, wow, the music is so important? Not at the time, no. No, I didn't realize the longevity it would have and how how much people would embrace it and would remember it 20 some odd years later, where they're complaining that, you know, oh, we watched WWE Network and they dubbed out this song and they dubbed out that song. Nobody really thinks about how important something's going to be years later while it's happening. It just turned out that way. Yeah, RVD coming out not to Pantera walk is a little weird <laughs> uh, when they replay some of that stuff. Yeah, but most of the times they kind of did a knockoff of Pantera. You know, his WWE themes uh, took a page from Pantera. Basically, all of wrestling music is generic knockoffs, for lack of a better term. You know, Steve Austin's theme, as iconic as it is, is, is based very heavily on a song by Rage Against the Machine. I believe he was either killing in the name of or one of the other tunes by Rage Against the Machine. It's you give somebody something that they're familiar with, that they kind of know, and there's no having to sell them on that particular thing. If, if I'm explaining that correctly. Yeah. Yeah. So do you think that wrestling music's a lot easier just to do and produce and get over than let's say music in a concert and, and things in like an actual music avenues? Apples and bowling balls, two completely different universes. Uh, wrestling music has to bring the emotion and the recogni recognition out of you immediately. Whereas in other forms of music, you don't have to do that right away. You know, wrestling, the moment you hear something, you have to know who's coming through that curtain. It has to be instantly recognizable or it's, it's not accomplishing what you want it to with other forms of music you could spend you know 25 bars on an intro before the actual song kicks in 
You don't necessarily have to have a formula. Whereas it's, it's as difficult to do wrestling music as it is to do other forms of music, but in a different way. So when you're, let's say, in front of a live crowd in, in the past, obviously COVID's going on, I can't do it right now, but do you play wrestling themes? No. We did one show or two shows back in while ECW was still around where I incorporated in one show, we did an unplugged acoustic versions of the comedy act. And we threw in one wrestling show, one wrestling song, I think Taz's first song. And it wasn't that it didn't come off that well. In 2001, um, we were invited to play the punk magazine 25 year anniversary party at CBGB's where we were given a very difficult spot on the bill. We were on in between Thor and the dictators. So you had Thor, who was this over-the-top muscle-bound bodybuilder that would blow up hot water bottles and do feats of strength while doing his heavy metal music. And then you had the, the infamous world-famous dictators, one of the godfathers of punk. And in between those two acts, you had Harry Slash and the Slash Tones where the, the set was like 75% wrestling music and 25% comedy. But the CBGB's punk magazine crowd liked the crazy comedy more than they liked the wrestling. And then after that, there was no reason to do the wrestling songs in concert. I actually say I was the proverbial fat lady. I sang, and then a week later, the company closed. <laughs> yeah, good point. Literally, I, I think the show we did was on a Friday, and then the following Saturday was Pine Bluff. Wow. It's Damn. Not over, it's not over till the fat lady sings, so I guess that makes me the fat lady. <laughs> Very true. Now, as we hit the wind down, head towards the finish here, what do you got planned? What's, what's coming up for you? Anything, or the COVID's kind of shutting everything down for the near future? For the time being, nothing. While I would love to do shows, doing shows at 25 or 30 percent capacity is bleeding money. Dude, I'd love to play for the love of playing, but at this point I'm working with pros and, you know, we all kind of like to get paid. So for the time being, there's nothing live booked. I'd like to get back into the studio, but I'm one of those guys that likes all the people in there recording at the same time, especially for the material I wrote and want to do now the you know the tom waits johnny cash leonard cone thing would require me having more than one person at a time in the studio until COVID is over and done with that's not going to happen my saxophone player arno was the most cautious person in the world he did one session and he got COVID, and he was in the hospital for 11 days so i I'd rather not bury anybody or have to attend a funeral because I want to get some music out there. So for the time being, I'm just on the podcast world tour. Nice. Love it. Glad to be a part of it. A wrestling promoter that I know very well was saying that he's not running shows, can't even like afford to do it because if they do 20 or 25%, he said he would need them to be at 100% attendance to make any sort of profit or even yeah. come close you know, to break even. So he's not even considering doing shows anymore because it's not worth it. 25% attendance, he goes, I'll lose money every show. 
you're bleeding money at that point. You're, you're not, you, even the club or the venue itself isn't making money and you can't really charge $200 a person, you know, in, in a small capacity. You know, I'd love to be able to say that, but unfortunately my name's not Mick Jagger and nobody's going to pay 200 bucks to see me. Hey, even Rage Against the Machine canceled the tour. It's supposed to go again. It's supposed to go last year at MSG and this year at MSG. Yeah. Cancel again to the next year because once you book MSG, you, you better sell that place out and you better sell $100 tickets to all those 20,000 people because the rent, paying the unions, it's insane. Yeah. So even they can't do it at 25%. They got to be 100%. Yeah, it's, it's very difficult. Everybody I know is involved in the entertainment field in one form or another. And They've all been starving. Most of us have starved. I was okay. I, I mean, I could ride this out for another year without really having to, you know, go on a breadline or something like that. But, you know, I'd love, to, like I said, I'd love to get back on stage. I'd love to get back in the studio, but I don't want to put anybody in any danger. Also, in a live show, a concert type atmosphere, even before COVID, there's a lot of sweating and sneezing and bodily fluids floating around that audience. Yep. So, until we get ahead of this, and unfortunately, there are too many people that are denying its problem, which is what's holding us back. There are other countries that shut their country down completely for 30 days, their entire citizenship complied, and now their COVID rate is zero. You know, here we live in the quote unquote greatest country in the world where we're asking our citizens wear a mask and social distance. Oh, you can't take away my rights. I have the right to, to not wear a mask. I don't believe COVID is real. I mean, come on, it's, it's as real as real gets. A good friend of mine just died less than a week ago here in New York from COVID. You know, I'm up to a dozen people that I know that got it, got sick, and half of them, six of them died and the other six, they're not right yet. A couple of people don't even have their sense of smell back and it's been a year. You know, this is not some, some conspiracy driven falsehood that was created by Bill Gates. This is legit. Now, whether it was created by animals or created in a, in a, in a scientific lab, whether it was an accident or whether it was biological warfare, I don't care. It's real and it's here. So the only thing we can do is you know, be there for each other. I don't like wearing a mask. I, I won't leave the house without one. Sometimes I'll wear two because if I somehow contract it, I don't want to get other people sick. And it's not taking away our rights. It's not taking away our freedoms. It's forcing us to be decent human beings and care for each other. Well said, for sure. Now let's talk about your buddy, your friend, Paul Heyman. Do you still talk to him today? Not like we used to. The last time I, I actually spoke to him in person, I think, was at his father's funeral a few years ago. Uh, I still keep in touch with him here and there via social media, text, messages, emails, stuff like that. But Paul is, Paul is in a different world right now, and I don't mean with WWE. When, when his first child was born, all of his priorities changed. Paul, the center of Paul Heyman's universe was no longer Paul Heyman. The center of Paul Heyman's universe became his children. And it's a very admirable thing. And I, I say it with the utmost respect that for as completely batshit crazy as he was, 
he is a phenomenal father. So contact is limited. Do you wish you were still closer to him or, it, you know, life happens and it is what it is? It is what it is. I mean, my, my best friends uh, when I graduated high school are strangers to me now. You know, life changes. Life is a perpetually changing cycle and you can either adapt to the changes or you become the dinosaur staring up at the sky wondering why that bright light keeps getting bigger. With Paul and like the last time you saw him, was it like old times or was he different? No, the last time I saw him was at his dad's funeral. Okay, and the Paul Heyman that I knew still exists, but not really. Uh, the moment his kids changed, like I said, his priorities all changed. So he's still the psycho yuppie from Scarsdale at heart, but he's more of a down-to-earth father now than anything else, and it's a very admirable quality. When you saw him you know, at the funeral stuff, obviously it's, it's a different setting, and obviously he's not going to be jovial and cheery and stuff, but did you have uh, still a connection with him, though, or is it yes. you know, time changed? Yeah, that's... If I ran into him tomorrow, it would be high fives and hugs and how are you's and all that. It wouldn't be, he wouldn't big league me or, or snub me or anything like that. But, you know, we've both gotten older. So, you know, may, like I think I said this on Francine's podcast, maybe when his son graduates college, I'll get a phone call at three in the morning asking if I want to get together at like Big Nick's for a slice of pizza in Manhattan and, you know, get high and party and, you know, have some <laughs> drinks. My response would be, no, I'm an old man now. I don't want to do any of that. With him, I guess, uh, you know, like you said, priorities change stuff, but with him, when I did an interview a few years back with uh, C.W. Anderson, it went out on the sheets and C.W. Anderson basically said, you know, Paul maybe gave up on ECW and Paul got a hold of that and man, did he rip C.W., who's such a nice guy, but he ripped him apart saying that's not true. And the rollerball thing's not true. What do you think happened there? Paul, I kind of snapped a little bit. He did not like CW Anderson talking about him. Uh, first off, I, I think CW is a great guy and I have nothing but respect and fond memories and what have you. So there's no heat or anything. I just think that Paul had gotten sick and tired of people you know, continually talking about something that didn't happen. I know for a fact, as far as rollerball is, I think we spoke about this earlier, as far as rollerball, I know for a fact he did not film that while ECW was running, nor did he film it in California. It was filmed at a soundstage up in Westchester. You know, and it was ECW had already, you know, the last nail in the coffin with the bankruptcy had already happened. It wasn't done while the company was running, not even remotely close. It was about 15 uh, tweets of him just going off on CW Anderson. I paid you $75 a night, <laughs> like on and on. Like, he was, he was. I don't know, something must have hit that day. He was not happy. It could have been, and it could have just been that this was the, the last straw of people constantly saying the same thing over and over again. That's not true. For your listening audience, I, Harry Slash, being of sound mind and body, hereby attest that Paul Heyman did not film Rollerball while ECW was in existence, unless Paul lied to me too. Do you believe that he could lie like that? Oh, God, yes. <laughs> His father once said, if he's awake and talking, he's lying. 
you know, but it, it's Paul. That's it's, you know, like if you're going to play with a grenade, you know that the grenade might explode. Is he always been that way? I mean, his dad's saying it, but is he always been the way or is the wrestling business maybe like changed him and made him like a total worker? Well, I didn't know him outside of wrestling, so I don't know what he was like um, when he was just a photographer, when he was running Studio 54. I don't know. But the person usually is the same person. You do whatever you have to to survive and get ahead. And that's just what he did. Do you consider him and do you think he was a genius? He was an extremely lucky genius. That the things that were a home run were not only a home run out of the park, they went out of the parking lot and possibly into the next town. The stuff that didn't work, you never saw. Because there was a lot of stuff that bombed. And then he would go to the studio and he would move this and take a segment here and change a little bit of this and make a complete abomination of a train wreck into something usable. So in that respect, he could turn uh, chicken shit into chicken salad. Do you think it's funny that a lot of people say, oh, he's not a genius and this and that? Do you think in one aspect, like, it's funny because maybe they don't know him like you know him, like you know him or knew, you know, obviously knew him very, very well. Paul was a genius in that he would come up with a skeleton. And then like, let's say Tommy or Taz or Sandman would want to add the, the flesh and the bones and this and that. And he would take his idea and her idea and that idea and put them together with his original idea and be able to mold it into what it, what it eventually was seen, you know, which takes a very intelligent person to be able to take six disjointed elements and come up with a cohesive story. No doubt about it. And they said he was the best at taking your weaknesses and turning them either into strengths or turning the weaknesses into something you'll never, ever see on TV. Absolutely. He, he would find the one it factor about a particular per performer, and that's what would be highlighted. I wasn't there for the public enemy. Okay. I got there after maybe like towards their, the end of their run. I, I forget when they went to WCW. The first show I saw was in 95. And I wasn't involved with the company. But from what I've been told, uh, Rocco and Johnny weren't exactly the most mat proficient wrestlers there were. There was no Eddie Guerrero, Dean Malenko in that tag team. So what he did was he hid that. And he highlighted what they could do, which was be entertaining, goofy, funny. And he highlighted that. There, there were a lot of wrestlers in ECW that were horrendous wrestlers. But they had something, something they could do, something they can give people. So he highlighted that, you know, and then there were others that were just these absolutely ridiculously great wrestlers and terrible talkers. So he, he would put them with people that were phenomenal talkers, but not the best of wrestlers. He knew how to, how to shine coal until you got a diamond out of it, or at least make it look like a diamond before somebody realized it was just a lump of coal. I was thinking of Public Enemy, too, when I was saying it, because you read online, like, wow, that match was 15 minutes. I remember watching that 
on TV or on tape or something like that was only six minutes. Like, what what are they getting that fifteen minutes? Probably because he edited the shit out of the match. Well, that fifteen minutes was three minutes of dancing, two minutes of talking, eight <laughs> minutes of selling, and then a table spot. Gotta love Public Enemy. Though. Gotta love them. Yeah. With the advent of cell phone cameras he wouldn't have been able to get away with what he did back then as far as editing the live shows. You know, a wrestler would botch a spot in the audience. If you were there that night, yeah, you saw it, you read about it in one of the dirt sheets, but if you didn't see it, it wasn't real. And unless you saw it, you forgot about it. You know, I saw him take the third segment of the match, turn it into the first segment, use the first segment as the fourth segment, completely shred a match, put it together, and you watch it on television, you're like, this is the most amazing thing I've seen. The beauty of editing. Yeah. You know, and he was a genius when it came to that. You know, he had Ron and Charlie, who were absolute craftsmen, uh, with what they did as far as the early days of avid editing bays and what have you, there was nothing. What, what, what you would have on your phone back then would have taken like two entire rooms of computers to be able to accomplish. And to, to have been able to have put together television shows with two cameras, a shoestring budget, a backdrop in somebody's basement was brilliant. You know, Joey Styles would do the interviews and he'd look around, you know, like he was listening to the crowd, but it was in someone's basement. There was no crowd there. That was flown in. Yeah. Amazing. You know, what, what they were able to accomplish with kind of a small staff, if you think about it, in the grand scheme of things. You know, WWE's yeah. got thousands of people. ECW had, you know, a handful. East, WWE, had, one person has one job. That's all they have to do. Mm-hmm. whether it's special effects, lighting, makeup, sound, staging, whatever. Everybody has one job. In ECW, everybody had three, four, sometimes five different gigs all happening all at the same time. Now, as far as you, you did so many different jobs, but when you first started with ECW in your backstage, you said nobody really knows who you are. How do they figure out who, who you are? Like you, you said you're very unassuming. You didn't come out and tell them, you know, you're doing music, you're doing this, you're doing that. How do they know who you are? They would see me doing things and I would always be in the gorilla position with Paul and the people that needed to know Paul would introduce me. This is Harry, you know, you can listen to him, you know, and there, after the first few times, I just became like part of the lighting fixtures where people knew I was there. They knew I had something to do with the company. They just didn't know what unless it interacted with them. Did you get along with all the guys backstage? Like, let's say Taz. Did you get along with Taz? I got along with almost everybody. Uh, very few, almost no altercations with any of the talent. There was a couple of misunderstandings. But like the first time I met Taz, he was confrontational. He, he thought I was some fan that had snuck in backstage and I had to explain how wrong he was. And what happened? You want me to tell the story? Yes. <laughs> okay. It's like one of the first times I was in ECW, Taz had no clue who I was. He saw some big goon walking around. He came up and he stuck his finger in, in my chest and said, brother, who, who are you? What are you throwing back here? What the fuck are you throwing back here? And I'm looking down at the finger in my chest and I'm looking down at him. I was a little bit taller than him. 
And I said, well, one, you met me last night in Long Island. Two, I'm Paul's friend. Three, get your finger out of my chest before I break it off and stick it up your ass. <laughs> oh, oh, you're Paul's friend. Okay, okay. I didn't know. I didn't know, brother. It's all cool. But he was just protecting the locker room. You know, it's not like I had a laminate. And I'm just some guy that one day showed up and he's walking around backstage and hanging out in the gorilla position. I didn't know anything about wrestling. I didn't know I was supposed to shake people's hands or shit like that. You know, I just, you know, I just appeared one day and became a part, you know, one of the lighting fixtures. I was always around. What did you think about that locker room in general? Because so many people say there's a drug culture. They're all crazy. Uh, you know, this happens, that happens. Everybody's psycho. What did you think about the locker room as a whole? I loved it, to be honest with you. The Island of Misfit Toys. It was hedonism and debauchery at its finest. But the one proudest thing, nobody died when they were working for ECW. Not one single person you had. The psycho yuppie from Scarsdale running a bunch of juvenile delinquent misfits as wrestlers. And there's drugs and there's booze and there's sex and all this stuff is going on. But everybody took care of each other. Everybody looked out for each other. You know, some guy had too many pills in his system. You know, people would make sure he got back home safe. You know, somebody got hurt. People would be attentive to it. Everybody cared for each other. It reminded me a little bit of like an old Little Rascals episode where they said, hey, kids, let's put on a show. And, you know, they, the actors, Spanky and Alfalfa, painted the barn and then Spanky took tickets and Alfalfa was the lead. And everybody did something. That's what ECW was about. It was a giant group effort. Sounds like a big, uh, somewhat happy but crazy family. A very happy and dysfunctional family. I like that, though. That's a uh, good camaraderie. Yeah. I mean, not everybody was best friends with each other, and you did have some cliques, for lack of a better term. Like, the New York guys all knew each other. They hung out. The Philly guys hung out. You had the, the Southern boys all in their own little world. You had, And then you had other guys that would bounce back and forth between them, but it wasn't being alienated like the click era of WWF, you know, where if you weren't part of the click, you weren't cool. Or if you weren't part of his crew, you weren't cool. Everybody got along with each other. Everybody had fun with each other. You know, nobody, nobody was too serious until their match. Prior to that, it was like, Hey, sit down, have a beer or my match is over. Let's go to the parking lot, smoke some weed. You know, and there was harder drugs passing through there. I mean, I, I got to learn about a lot about Mexican pills. You know, I pronounced them, but I would probably need a English to Spanish dictionary to be able to do that. Um, I didn't do coke, and I didn't really see that much of it because I didn't do it. But when it came to booze and some weed, sure. And if you want to give me a couple of somas, sure. And then Louis Spicoli died from Soma's in WCW. And myself and several others said, well, I guess we're done with pills. I never took another one after that. Yeah, that's uh, scary, scary stuff. Especially yeah. somebody that close or somebody you know, you know doing Louis, that. Louis was a great guy. He was every good thing you've ever heard about him times 20. He was just a lovable teddy bear. Now, Want to ask you about the franchise, Shane Douglas, since we you know we both know him very well. Give me some dirt on uh, on Shane. 
There is no dirt. Shane is brilliant. Shane Douglas is Shane Douglas from the moment he leaves his house to the time he gets home. There is a difference between Shane Douglas and Troy Martin. It's a thin line, but there is a line. Okay. Um, Shane is absolutely brilliant and understood the business. And I, I learned, I was never going to be a wrestler, but he taught me so much about psychology. You know, I could pick his brain for hours at a time about why certain things happened and why it was supposed to happen that way. And it actually helped me with the writing of some of the music, you know, getting the, the wrestler's perspective of what is in their head. There, there's a, a vocal version of the extreme theme that actually has lyrics. It's floating around the internet. It's on YouTube. I actually called Shane and asked him a few questions as I was writing the lyrics to that because I was trying to get inside the mind frame of a pro wrestler, you know, from before he's out, when he's backstage waiting for his cue to go out to when he steps through the curtain and how there's, there's a mindset change where you go from being a performer to being a warrior. And before I recorded it, I called Shane up. I said, I need to read something to you. It's going to be on, on a different version of This Is Extreme. What do you think? And I read him the lyrics. And he goes, you caught it. It's perfect. I can't give you any advice. With him, he always kind of says, Paul owed him so much money. You know, he wouldn't pay a lot of the boys. Did you see a lot of that where either checks came back and they, you know, they bounced or Paul wasn't paying guys. Did you see a lot of that? Were you experienced and privy to that kind of stuff? Uh, I was, but there's the expression, not my pig, not my farm. It really didn't have anything to do with me. So I didn't really delve too into it back then. It wasn't any of my business for lack of a better term. You know, I, everybody complained about the checks bouncing. I was there for that. People complained about not getting paid. Yes. I know about that. I know about checks being delayed. I know about the infamous Federal Express plane that crashed and a box full of cash burnt up in the crash. I've heard about that story, you know, <laughs> but it wasn't, I mean, I'm not saying I was um, oblivious to it, you know, that I didn't care. It's just wasn't my universe. I, I look at it this way, you know, if, if you're working at General Motors and you don't get paid for four weeks, but you love putting cars together. So you, you stayed there and you put that car together then, you know, on the assembly line, that's what you loved doing. You got satisfaction of doing what you love, but eventually you need to pay your bills. So if General Motors is not paying you, you go work for Ford, you go work for Chrysler. True, I guess. But it's one of those things where I think not everyone obviously got, got screwed, but uh, you hear that story so much, almost becomes a little bit of a joke. Like, oh, how much did Heyman, you know, owe you? You know what I mean? Like, some of the boys almost made it into like their own kind of joke. Maybe they get over because they were so mad, but they kind of made it into a, a bit of a joke over after all these years. Well, yeah, but Paul never did that intentionally. Okay, he he was borrowing from Peter to pay Paul or maybe borrowing from Vince to pay Paul or whatever. You know, the old expression is ECW was owed so much money from the pay-per-views because they would hold your money 
until like two pay-per-views later. And if you didn't get them their minimum number of buys, you wouldn't get paid. In some cases you would owe uh, Premiere or On Demand, you would owe the money. You had to guarantee them a certain market share. So it's kind of like putting a deposit down on a catering hall for a wedding that you don't get the deposit back even if the wedding doesn't happen. The ECW, not Paul Heyman, but you know HHG Corporation was owed a ridiculous amount of money from pay-per-view companies, from merchandise outlets. You know, there, there was a lot of bad deals that got struck along the way. And he never, you know, shorted anybody on pay intentionally. He, if, if things had gone right, everybody would have been made good on. You know, there were times he had to borrow money to, to make the payroll, but eventually you run out of people you can borrow money from while the, the pay-per-view company's like, yeah, yeah, I know we owe you like, you know, $300,000, but you got another pay-per-view coming up. So we're going to hold on to your money going on TNN increased. They had to increase production. They had to increase, you know, upgrade all the equipment to be on, on the Nashville network. And as we know, you know, TNN did nothing to promote the company. So what you're doing is it's like, you know, a, a boat where you're just throwing money into an empty hole in the water just to keep the boat floating. Just uh, crazy. So with Paul, do you think that as much of a genius he was creatively and wrestling wise, do you think that he might have been equally as bad as far as business or do you think it's just who he was in business with? No, that was just an understatement to say he was bad in business. He says it himself. If ECW had a, C, a chief financial officer or somebody like that running the show, where all Paul did was creative and didn't have to stay up all night and figure out how to do t-shirt deals and this deal and that deal, if all he did was focus on the show itself and other people were running things, of course things would have been different. You know, he had a tendency of waiting until the very last moment to book airplane flights. And you've heard these stories where Chris Jericho had to use a different name and they had to get bereavement fares. At one point, he was borrowing other people's credit cards because his was maxed out to get plane tickets. And I know that he intended, he wanted deep down, he wanted to make good on every penny. But, you know, you're spending $2 and losing $4 while you're owed $6. It's just not adding up. And you always hear stories from the boys like, oh, I expensed all this stuff. And they thought they were going to get the money back. Well, he didn't have the money back to pay him back for the stuff they expensed. So they were kind of shit out of luck. You know, you can't get blood from a stone. There was no money there. Not, not only did ECW file for bankruptcy back in 01, Paul Heyman filed for a personal bankruptcy, too. And it wasn't to get out of paying bills. It was just so he wouldn't have to spend the next seven years getting back to zero. I know it's one of those things where it's funny that I don't know, you couldn't get a good businessman uh, to really solidify the back end of ECW. Yeah, the, the, the people that were, you know, on that level that did deal with syndication and stuff, they, they didn't get exact. They didn't get the best of deals. You know, when I heard back then, like what the the pay-per-view deal, not the pay-per-view, I think the video game deal was an absolute joke. It originally started with a Kai who would put out the greatest wrestling game in history, uh, Virtual Pro Wrestling 2 from Japan, which eventually became, I think, the No Mercy game for the N64. Yep. Okay. 
it was supposed to be their game engine for the ECW game. And I believe that's the game engine that All Elite Wrestling is trying to get for their video game. It was the best wrestling game engine there was. But somehow the video game deal got ping-ponged where a low ball money was brought in and then it was sold for more and then traded for something else. And, you know, I think we got traded for another video game option and two draft, you know, draft picks to be named later or something stupid like that. You know, there, it was just out of hand. You know, we ended up being the hand-me-down company, you know, Jax and Mattel, Jax had WWE uh, WCW, um, their deal with old San Francisco toy makers ended. So they brought in Mattel, I believe, was doing their figures or toy biz. So somehow old San Francisco toy makers wanted to continue their wrestling revenue stream. And there was another mediocre deal that was cut that wasn't really worth what it was. So it seems like just all the way around, every you know door you open was just a bad business deal or a bad move um, oh. it was all leading oh. towards curtains you know and it wasn't nothing was done intentionally you know it wasn't like he intentionally wanted to bankrupt the company it just happened <coughs> do you think that if let's say something got infused in 01 and and he was able to keep it afloat do you think that he would have elected had he been given the chance to keep ECW open or go to WWF? That I don't know. I don't know. I know that he was in my house when he accepted the offer from WWF. Oh, we, wow. We were, we were sitting here watching Monday Night Raw and, you know, one of the one of the suits, one of the McMahons, I forget which one, called him up and he was giving his opinion on what we saw on the show. And then he, he walked outside and, you know, was talking on the phone about a half hour later he came back and he said, hey, it looks like I'm working for Vince. You wow. Know? But how could you not? The company's, you know, one signature away from bankrupt. You're $6 million in debt. You know, you're never going to make that money back. You know, it, it, when you're that far in the hole, you need to win a lottery ticket two weeks in a row to get back to square one. So what option did he have? You know, stay on the sinking ship, you know, be the captain and drown or put on a life vest and swim to shore. He chose to swim to shore. I don't think there's anybody in the world that would have done the same thing, that wouldn't have done the same thing. You know, it, it's that it went down the way it did, um, but it was what it was. You know, there was no way around it, you know, and for those that are complaining, you know, oh, we were owed this much and that, well, then why didn't you go work for one of the other companies? Could it be that no other company would have had you? True, yeah. Shane and the, you know, leaving and getting a pretty good deal from WCW. So, yeah. Shane had already been in WWE. Guys like Shane, like Taz, they're always going to be going, you know, there's always going to be a demand for, you know, a top quality worker, no matter who, where they were on the ECW food chain. You know, some of the lower card guys got decent deals, you know, and then you had some of the, the main eventers and upper mid carters. Nobody else wanted them. Because ECW, the land of misfit toys, where Paul Heyman will take the extra time to hide your weaknesses and highlight your strengths, you know, that didn't really happen with a major network company like WCW or, or WWF at the time. Let's be honest, there were some horrendous wrestlers in WCW that were getting paid more than half the locker room combined. Very true, yeah. Insane amount. 
Yeah, they, they had something that the big boys saw interest in and could market. You know, you could be the most technically proficient wrestler on the planet, but if you have zero personality, you have nothing. But then you got the other guys that are shit wrestlers with the over-the-top personality, and they become the stars. But that entertainment, not just about work rate. You know, here's the other thing. All the, all the people that are complaining that Paul owed the money, well, nobody would be listening to your complaints if Paul hadn't given you a chance to be in the company. The only reason people care about listening to you complaining about bounce checks is because somebody gave you a shot. It's not his fault that you weren't marketable somewhere else. Then there's others that post ECW just didn't care. They had their fun. We're done. Move on. Would he try to like prevent guys from leaving though? Or would he just let them go and say, Hey, go make your money elsewhere. I know with the Dudleys, he just let them go. You know, Bubba has talked about that. He went to Paul. He said, all, all, just give us $1 more than what you're giving us now. And he wouldn't give it to him. Now, whether that was Vince, you know, calling him up in secret and saying, I want the Dudleys. I don't know. Um, I know that any time I got an outside gig that had nothing to do with wrestling when it was producing other records, you know, he'd like, well, don't stop at one. See if you can get two out of them. He never wanted a whole, he, he wanted to see everybody do good, but he couldn't guarantee them that seat at the table. It seems like, and I know a lot of people say like he got his boys in the Dudleys, Taz, Dreamer. You know what I mean? Like there seems to be like his crew, his New York crew. No, he wasn't the one hiring them. If, you know, I, I don't care how much faith they had in Paul Heyman. If they didn't see something marketable in someone, they would not bring them in. You know, no matter how, how much Paul could praise these people, at the end of the day, it's not him signing the paychecks. True. And WBA, yeah, true. Yeah. So it could be a little bit of bitterness, maybe, from some of the guys that didn't get end up getting signed? A little bit of bitterness from the people that didn't get signed? Well, that's on them. Nobody guarantees you anything in life. You either earn it, you take it, you steal it, or you don't deserve it. What do you think is, like, the legacy of ECW? Like, when you just look at it, like, thinking back, like, man, the stamp of ECW. That it was an absolute revolution to a stagnant industry that changed the the perspective of how people viewed professional wrestling for a period of time. And it was the flame that ignited the heyday of pro wrestling, where this little company from Philadelphia was doing some really outrageous shit. And the big boys in Atlanta and New York realized, well, maybe we should do some outrageous shit too. Now, one final question for you before you go. Actually, before the before the plugs, one final question. Favorite ECW theme? Mine or, or in general? No, yours. Yours. Of mine? Wow. Uh, I have a couple, but for different reasons. The clap that we did for Scotty Anton, Scotty Riggs. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Because it was a parody of wrestling music. It was a parody of his American Males theme. We intentionally set out to write a bad song. You know, his, his, his story at the time was he was the network's guy. So, you know, uh, Cyrus from the network picked 
a band to record the theme for Scotty Anton. So naturally it would sound as cheesy and as generic as possible. Plus there were a lot of inside jokes within that song. Like the opening riff is a knockoff of the rollerball theme. Rollerball followed ECW on the TNN Thrill Zone on Friday nights. The guitar solo is a bastardization of Happy Trails to You by Roy Rogers. You know, there's me doing little Elvis vocals in the background. And we actually gave credit to a fictitious band I made up called Johnny Soul and the West Coast Wranglers for that song. And the funny thing is, I don't think the Slash Tones were mentioned once on ECW television, but Don Callis mentioned Johnny Soul and the West Coast Wranglers quite a bit. So I always <laughs> dug that because of how absurd that song was. Uh, Sabu's music, of course, the extreme theme. Um, I'm partial to Super Crazy song because of the way the audience reacted with everybody clapping along to the drum beat of that. I never expected that to happen. And then you have an entire arena clapping along to it. I'm like, yeah, this is cool. I guess we, we did right by it. But out of all of them, it, I would have to pick, if I had to pick one, I would say, like I said, hookah blues for Sabu because it wasn't intentionally written for wrestling. It was just a song I had in mind. Awesome stuff all the way around. Love it. Uh, but where can everybody find you as far as some plugs and, or you, you're kind of staying hidden. Well, I'm no longer on the anti-social network. Um, I'm on Facebook at Harry Slash. You can probably search for it. I'm on Twitter as Harry Slash. I'm on Instagram as Harry Slash. But these days, there isn't much to report, so I usually just put up 20-year-old photos. You know, I, I do want to plug one Twitter account called The Extreme Collector, who has got the most insane collection of ECW stuff. Plus, he puts out a lot of really cool original merchandise and limited runs for his fan base. Like, he'll do 50 of something and then never do it again, which is really cool. And I'm also, during COVID, I've increased my toy collection. Thanks to, like, Zombie Sailor is coming out with a Sabu and Bruiser Brody Hasbro-style figure. I stayed up till midnight the other night to order the Hayabusa Hasbro style figure from Chella Toys. You know, the last year, what, what have I done over the last year as an adult? I bought toys. I bought children's toys. <laughs> I actually talked to Zombie Sailor and I got Kevin Sullivan uh, a figure. So Kevin Sullivan's going to get a uh, cool old school figure out of it too. That's awesome. I mean, the whole retro thing is amazing that it's coming back. Like right now, cassettes are hot. Yep. I never expected to see that. I sold all my cassettes in bulk for like 50 cents a piece years ago because I'd replaced all of those records, all of those albums onto CD. Now vinyl is back. Cassettes are back. I'm waiting for them to release the ECW album on 8-track. You know, it is crazy. Yeah. You know, but your, your fans out there, if they want to check out a cool site, definitely go to... to extreme collector on instagram and wherever else he might be and you'll see some amazing stuff from his collection as far as raven stuff i think he could open up a museum on on the raven merchandise he has including like his ring worn stuff i always get a big kick because he'll put up like a t-shirt that he just picked up that i forgot we did awesome i love that 
Now, Raven's an to, interesting guy. Yeah, I'd love to send people to my website. I still have slashtones.com, but there's nothing there because about two years ago, I paid somebody to build a, an updated 21st century version of my website, and they hijacked it and refused to finish it, and they have all of my content. So there, there's no reason to even like deal with it right now because what am I going to talk about? What am I going to plug? So if you want to find me, I'm out there on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and just do a little homework and be your own little detective and you'll find the fat lady. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Harry, thank you uh, so much. I appreciate all the time. Great stuff. Loving going down memory lane and talking about those awesome ECW themes and getting to know you had more of just a role at ECW than just the theme guy. Well, I want to thank you for giving me something to do this evening or else I would just be sitting in this chair staring at the television. <laughs> hey, that sounds like fun. Well, after a year of it, it ain't that much fun. Good point. Good point. Harry, Harry and the Slash Jones. Thank you uh, so much. Really appreciate all the time. Thank you for having me, John. It was a pleasure. This has been a John Paz Power Trip production in conjunction with the Two Man Power Trip of Wrestling. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Two Man Power Trip. You can check us out on Facebook. You can subscribe on YouTube. You can go to patreon.com slash tmptempire to become a patron. And also check out the website tmptempire.com and buy a shirt at prowrestlingtees.com. Two Man Power Trip, where the power lies brother.